everyone. My name is Lydia. This is Carla. Carla, what is our podcast? Our podcast is No Librarians Allowed. Welcome to another episode in a very cold and sleety day. <sighs> Disgusting. But we are staying warm with a cat and ideas about intellectual freedom <laughs> and social justice. Ooh. The kinds of things that keep us warm yeah. at night. Light a little toasty fire for us. For those who are not librarians, I know people in my life who are not necessarily librarians, they often think, well, it's fall, it's, you know, freedom to read, and, but it's like every day is freedom to read, you know, in this profession. I freedom to read was in February. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so honestly. Oh, maybe it's banned. Book, yes, yeah. and then freedom to okay. Yeah, so I that's think like an American thing. Maybe, maybe I know traditionally in the in the fall, um, yeah, we would highlight um, you know banned books. But honestly, like, what day would we be pro banning books, right? So <laughs> only on those days. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Every other time, burn those books because it's so damn cold here. We need to keep warm somehow. But it shows how these issues are still relevant because. They never go away. It's not so much even about access, but what is a nuanced understanding of intellectual freedom? And I think today I certainly wanted to bring this idea of social justice into it, in that we are dealing with, I don't know if you want to call it balancing, the ideas of providing as much access and sort of championing ideas while recognizing that some voices are marginalized and many of our user groups maybe have not had the same equal access to begin with, even though we assume, right? That, well, by virtue of us being open, everyone can access everything, even though their literacy levels are different. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe their cultural context was different. Maybe they didn't feel safe in these institutions, but we never really thought about that before, I think. I'm thinking about there's that difference between like equality and equity. Right. And um, the, fences. <laughs> the fences. The fences. The fences. Yeah. The boxes and the fences. You guys know. But now I can't remember which one is which. So equality is like everyone has the same box, That's but the right. people are different sizes. That's right. And equity is everyone has a box that brings them up to the same height or they get rid of the fence. Those That's are the right. two options. Because right. I think there were three. Yes. So when we talk about neutrality, what we're talking about is equality. And what we're, when right. we're talking about social justice, maybe what we're talking about is equity. Right. So accounting for the fact that, yeah, despite our best intentions, the outcomes of those different user groups won't be the same. Just because we open the doors, not everyone sort of experiences the library in the same way. And how do we meaningfully make sure that their needs are met to the best ability according to their, I don't know, priorities or, or understanding? I would say that, yeah, the idea of being socially just, even though it sounds really wonderful, like who would ever be for social injustice, is still uncomfortable for us as institutions, largely, I think, because of that a shadow of neutrality, if you will, right? So for so many decades, probably being trained in library schools as mm -hmm. kind of the enculturation into the profession, there's still that debate of, um, you know, do you give people what they want or do you have some say in responding to what it is they want, knowing that what people want isn't neutral to begin with? It's, it's always political. I guess, yeah, what, what does social justice mean to you, Carla? Ooh, it's both an action and an outcome. So maybe it's like a, an ideal state that we can achieve, a mm -hmm. state of a just experience for mm -hmm. everyone in society, but also the steps that we need to take in order to get to that. So the practice of social justice. That's very realistic because I'll be honest, even me, I, 
maybe because I adopt the traditions of the library world, if you will, that, well, it's either is or it isn't. This is also practice in that you put in the hours, you you try, and, and it's not 100% every day. Yeah, you talk about in small ways, in bigger ways. So what are things that you do every day as an individual who works within an institution mm. versus what are larger institutional conversations, what are larger like professional conversations that need to be had across the community and changes that need to be made, policy changes? Are there larger actions that can be taken? Are there demonstrations? Are there all kinds of things that can happen? So there are now growing bodies of literature in our professional field on which we can begin to rely on that actually try to tackle the two. And one that I'm thinking of is a volume that I'm holding right now that I'm sure all of our listeners have read already. <laughs> Even though we haven't read it yet. <laughs> so this is one of those, uh, we're preempting maybe yeah. future discussions. Preview. That's right. We will read the chapters. We saw some articles, we saw some books, we got them out of the library. We're looking at stuff, we're talking about stuff. This is our episode today. <laughs> and so in particular, I'm talking about a volume called Information, Literacy and Social Justice, edited by Lua Gregory and Shana Higgins. And the subtitle is Radical Professional Practice. I like that subtitle. I'll just give a really brief uh, preview. It has chapters such as from crusade against ignorance to crisis of authenticity, curating information for participatory democracy. And I have heard those terms a lot in the context of fake news and educating students, so that never goes away. Tyranny of tradition, how information paradigms limit librarians' teaching and student scholarship. Forces of oppression in the information landscape, free speech and censorship in the United States and information, power to the people, students and librarians dialoguing about power, social justice, and information. And of course, I think it's actually aimed a lot at, um, you know, kind of instructional librarians or people who do a lot of, you know, information literacy in this maybe uncomfortable space between coming to terms with what we do as actually being political and hopefully socially just, like providing access for free to everyone. And Which is in itself a social justice practice. Yeah. Don't forget that, libraries. That is a radical act. Protecting privacy, sometimes in the face of the law, that's pretty radical. There are many people who don't want us to do that. Buying a variety of things for children who, again, are forgotten by society. Children are not profitable. They don't pay taxes, right? When you think about it, I personally have found the idea of intellectual politics as a useful concept maybe in helping us navigate that discussion. Okay, so tell me about that more. Sure. Intellectual politics. And I guess really I'm referring to the last paragraph of a blog by Red Librarian, my friend Sam Popovich, who's been on this podcast, who has a gift, I would say, for eloquently summarizing, you know, fairly big and complex ideas and relating them to our context and professional life. It was helpful to, for me to sort of, well, discover or think about this idea of intellectual politics in that it's a commitment to a side in many ways, forgetting that idea of neutrality and thinking through where, what do we stand for? Not so much even as individuals, but as professionals, right? So when I come to work, what do I do with my time? History is often a good way for us to frame it. And I thought about, you know, have librarians gone to jail for protecting privacy? 
Would I go to jail? Would I stand on the picket line and take a bullet for work? Those are very extreme examples, but they are taking sides, right? Because you either show up to that picket line or you don't. Mm -hmm. You either hand over the information to the law police, whatever, mm-hmm. or you don't. So yeah, I mean, it, sometimes it's physically taken aside, but also obviously intellectually committing to a purpose. And um, in this you know, last paragraph of a recent blog post, Sam argues about rejecting the rules of liberal society, the idea of fairness and the marketplace of ideas, and that we need to reject the market itself, right? Because Well, this idea of the marketplace of ideas, it's already rigged. It's not neutral. It's unjust. Mm -hmm. So how do we inject more justice? How do we bring that context and systematically ensure that we include, that Mm -hmm. we don't forget? I guess that's what that means to me. I was fortunate to attend the Writing Stick Conference last uh, June about Indigenous authors and writing and publication was really something that the presenters talked about a lot. And of course, that's something that they talked about is who gets published? What's the percentage of Indigenous authors who are writing and yet who are actually published? And then once published, are they promoted? What kind of, I don't know what the words are, but like what kind of marketing package are they given? What kind of tour are they booked on? Who is actually running the publishing house? This is all, it sounds so dumb, like, of course, of course, of course, of this. This is, none of this is new. Who's running the publishing house? You know, who is in charge? Who's making those decisions? It's not the indigenous peoples. It is typically like academics, white, blah, 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 all of those things. So you have to be looking at the entire system. And in this case, like, yeah, it is a marketplace. You know, ideas are not just free floating random things. Though with internet, yeah, that changes the game a bit. Actually, I would say changes the game extensively, and that's something that I wish we had talked about more at the discussion this past week, was how that can change the game of access to voices. And does that change our decision-making about who we may include in a library collection or who we may choose not to have as a speaker? Because are we truly censoring someone if they have legit other platforms that they can be saying their stuff from? So in the past, yeah, if a person wasn't able to stand on a street corner and say their stuff or circulate a written publication, then, yeah, that would be censorship. But is choosing not to have a particular speaker over another speaker truly censorship? It's a decision we make like any other collection decision, but at the same time, that person, it's entirely likely that they have other platforms available to them. Probably online, they can have video streaming, they can have websites, they can have newspapers published online, they can have social media channels. There's a plethora of options for publication that didn't exist in the past that are, I think, need to consider weighing them into the balance of what does censorship look like now with all of these multiple channels of access. That's a great (laughs) point about 21st century in that the conversations now are different from the 70s. So while the issue may be still the same, the reality, the way it plays out in real people's lives today is different. So great point. Related to that, in I guess the segue would be another library juice publication to be. That we haven't read yet, but we have a more legit excuse this time because it's not actually published yet. So this one is a CFP, a call for what? Papers. Papers. Remaking the library, makerspace, critical theories, reflections, and practices. So this one, I was really excited to see this one. And it 
kind of ties back to our conversation with Holly about the middle age of makerspaces. So like we're past this kind of beginning phase where everyone's super excited. What we're trying to do is share ideas about how to get started, how to make a case for them with stakeholders, both inside and outside the library, be that funders or buy-in from staff or from players in an organization. So how to and why. But what this is asking for now is um, they say that they're addressing a gap in some of the literature and the publication, which I would totally agree. Mm. And what they say is many authors focus on how to start a makerspace and or the benefits of integrating one within a library. Alternatively, this edited collection captures how librarians and educators have disrupted and remade their makerspaces in response to the constraints of the maker movement's makerspace. And so what they're talking about in terms of these constraints is they're framing it as being like maker culture comes from a particular... Or like a historical... Yeah, a particular historical context or a cultural context, which they're linking back to evolving out of Silicon Valley, privileging certain types of making over others, and talking about who is a maker and who isn't, which typically means able-bodied, certain level of education, certain amount of free time doing particular technological things. And usually men. Usually men. Usually white men. So some of the topics that they list uh, in terms of what it might look like to disrupt the maker movements, makerspace is what they're talking about, would be like feminist makerspaces, feminist approaches to making, queering the makerspace, intersectionality in approaches to running and designing a makerspace, uh, inclusive and anti-oppressive programming and events, inclusive and equitable practices in terms of staff hiring, training and development, Managing expectations of makerspaces with different user needs, university expectations, donors, etc. cetera. Uh, makerspace design and organization, including layout, signage, furniture, colors, etc. within the space. I love this one. And I know it was a conversation that we had and we continue to have with artwork and visuals that were designed by marketing for the makerspace where I work and also what final makerspace ended up looking like. In my opinion, it was quite a masculine design. So colors that we have for our library are very bright and vibrant and used in kind of a happy, fun way. And the colors we went with for our makerspace were heavy use of black, heavy use of kind of a neon green, like uh, really kind of a more masculine and sci-fi kind of energy. That's a very historic, you know, hacker culture circa 1990. Right, kind of like you can imagine like the black computer screen with that like green font Absolutely, yeah. Oh man. Documentation, so things like user agreements, um, acceptable use policies, code of conduct, which is also very interesting. Who is able to come in and use the space? What kind of training is presupposed and is required? Are there behavioral policies? What are those? So the next big bullet point they have is issues, challenges, and ethical considerations in library makerspaces. So limitations of the maker movement's conceptualization of what making is, who makers are, and why people make. I think this is really prevalent in some of the maker movements, and I love them categorizing it as like the maker movement, because that is typically, in my experience, been used as a positive. And I love this opportunity to kind of now think about it as a historical construct with a particular context and now being able to look back and critique it. Who makers are, why people make what making is. Underrepresentation of genders, classes, races, ages, and abilities in the makerspace, so, so important. Virtual reality technologies and the issue of virtual harassment. Never really thought about that before. All the issues about 3D printing, trademark and copyright infringement. Prove it again, bias and gender. 
I think this maybe has to do with who gets to be the expert in the space. And who gets to be perceived as yeah. being an expert or stupid, right? Yeah. So the tension between, I think, learning together, co-learning, and expecting a whiz in every tool available in that space. Yeah. Well, and there's just so many examples of ego run amok, mm -hmm. I feel, in like the tech industries. So if a staff member has that um, approach with others, with their colleagues or with patrons, and if people in the space do, what kind of dynamic does that create between the different users in the space and who is welcome in that space and who feels comfortable navigating those kinds of conversations? And it can be a rough place. Well, the fact that, yeah, they bring gender and how women are biased, or sorry, they're already at a disadvantage in that they're perceived as being incompetent or maybe faking their knowledge and like they need to work twice as hard to mm -hmm. show that actually, yeah, they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Some of the other interesting ones, um, developing staff technical and leadership competencies, navigating the politics of reallocating library space for makerspaces. I know that kind of harkens back to the establishment idea of makerspaces and how to make that case. But, you know, what does it mean? That, what are we losing out on? To what extent do the technologies within a makerspace signal who belongs in this space and who doesn't? Fascinating. Certainly, yeah. Where are those Where's sewing, sewing machines? machines at? Bring yeah. them. I want them. Knitting machines, just straight up knitting tools. Do you have art supplies there? Do you have acoustic instruments? Do you have computer assisted basket weaving? Uh, talk about maker tradition for centuries. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of the role of innovation and entrepreneurship. I think this is very interesting because one of the classic arguments for a makerspace, for establishing one, would be that it helps people learn skills to improve their job prospects and we're incubating small businesses and but if we don't the makerspace has failed yeah is that a bad thing like maybe i just want to make a nice gift for someone or practice a creative art that i enjoy that's such a risky position to take i know it comes from a good place it's well intentioned under current economic and political conditions where we think well sure innovation entrepreneurship helping people Start up yeah. their own. What, what's bad about it? But if that's the only thing you measure or push for, that's very risky because much of our learning is not leading to a business immediately, mm -hmm. right? It's a lifelong process. Yeah, and that's only one possible outcome out of many possible outcomes. In the same way that we don't expect people who are checking out uh, works of great literature to then become writers themselves. It's not the sole purpose of a space. And so... Uh, yeah, it's important to consider many reasons and many reasons for being there. Anyway, so I just was super stoked to see this call for papers, and I'm really excited to see the publication when it comes out. I'm sure it will give us a lot to talk about, and yeah, I think it's just important. Library Juice Press is putting out a lot of content, which is good. It helps us to have you know evidence or have some sort of voice in the community from others who are going through similar issues. Well, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about a line that some people think they have to draw between what is considered a personal value and what's a professional value. And so, like, examples of this have been, you know, it's my personal value that hate groups are bad or whatever, but because I'm in the library, I have to welcome everyone. It's like, well... I don't think that's a personal value. I think that's one of your professional values. And your professional value is that, yes, you believe you support intellectual freedom. At the same time, you support inclusion. You support 
equity. You support the idea that we live in an unbalanced society and there are steps that we need to take within our own practices and systems in order to rectify that. So to me, those are not personal values that are coming in. These are professional values that people live by and are learning how to live by in their working life every day. And so I think that's why I really appreciate publications like this for taking that step of giving an opportunity for people to reflect on that aspect of their professional values and helping to articulate it, really giving food for thought about those particular aspects of the profession. We will read this volume. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make it a book club. Yeah. We can all read a chapter and then people can email us and we'll discuss it. We'll have a call-in show. (laughs) Yes. And there have been, um, I think they're called like journal clubs or article clubs. Usually I think academic librarians probably engage in that more, but what presses like this, and you know, in many ways podcasts are, right, is lowered barriers to talking about ideas in our own words, right, in sort of terms that are more relatable than maybe some academic language. And even though we're probably talking about kind of theories or ways of looking at the world models, but we're not, you know, Carla and I are not explicitly committing to these big terms. <laughs> not yet, but... If you tell me praxis, I will run that away. <laughs> <laughs> I neglected to read that part of the <laughs> call for papers. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to add about intellectual freedom and social justice? I think one of the biggest moments over the summer in terms of linking social justice to librarianship was the job description that MIT libraries posted for director of something something and following up on their relatively new mission Mm -hmm. for their library, it explicitly talked about social justice in that job posting and how that would be something, you know, one of several elements of focus. And... I thought that that was so extremely powerful that it would be listed as something to focus on for a professional, for a library to be working on, because that's a bold move. Mm -hmm. And certainly we have heard recently a lot of backlash against that idea that social justice is something that libraries can implement because it compromises our neutrality and the value of intellectual freedom. And so I'm excited to see more coming out of MIT and how they will be putting that into practice and then how other libraries can model that example. Especially coming from a very privileged institution, right? Sure. So for them to commit and say, now they're under the radar and many people will be looking to them. So I get that it's a sort of a big goal to meet, but they of all people should be able to commit resources Mm -hmm. to that, right? And I agree. So that's it's a political choice and in a sense to say, yeah, we will be pursuing this. We want to take action towards these types of goals. And I imagine the kinds of conversations and conflict that would have happened because, I mean, MIT is an academic institution. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of prestige associated with it. So, and by virtue, that means there's a lot of, um, you know, tradition, right? And traditions are very slow to change. Mm-hmm. So, I get that that's a very hard place to be, but we, we commend them and we yeah, support totally. them. There's a, an academic out of U of T, Matt Rosso, who has been working in, I think it's the Critical Maker Lab. Mm-hmm. And so he's really interested in using making in order to examine aspects of society. So, for example, running 
um, hackathons in order to say explore so dedicating that time to exploring like how our society is ableist or even crowdsourcing bathrooms right Mm -hmm. that's a issue that came up here in our context in our city um how that's a need sure and so like if you if your library is hosting a hackathon do you choose a topic like that or do you say free flow whatever people here want to do and probably the people there are going to be mostly white males who may choose a different topic and then further exclude people from participating in that process so I think it's going to be interesting to see this conversation and as these practices develop in makerspaces how these kinds of conversations will come into that field of technology in libraries. Your comments also made me think of policies and I think we were very good at thinking about process and Providing some structure to our community members, you know, we have walls, we have rooms, we have staff, we have hours, we have policies. So there's already some structure. It's not just like standing on a street corner and shouting, right? For me, social justice, sometimes I think about kind of power to the people and what it means to maybe let the public run some parts of our programming, like our operations while still, you know, compensating people fairly. Like, this is the tough part. And also not letting, you know, the community is not necessarily a, a just place automatically. There's, there's dominant groups and people who speak louder and push their agenda. So it's, it's really hard to just say, yeah, well, the community do it. There's a reason why, you know, we go to school and try to think carefully about what we do. I've often imagined and I don't have a solution to this but you know on that Arnstein's ladder of participation from everything from tokenism (laughs) to dictatorship (laughs) to um, you know truly being like I guess community activist or community power or whatever I realize those are utopias right so either end their their ideals or abstract concepts increasing degree of sort of community action Mm -hmm. And that may mean conflict and inefficiency, but boy, is that living. (laughs) So in my mind, I want a spicy meatball. (laughs) I want more, more conflict and life. (laughs) So uh, to Um, me, I think social justice has an element in that, right? That it's what it means to be free. So we just played a fugue called So You Want to Write a Fugue. Yeah. So it's very meta in that it's yes. asking, you want to create this thing? Here's the thing. Here's how we're going to do it. So I was at a super nerdy band camp last weekend, which Lydia apparently made fun of me uh, about to no end <laughs> while she was out for beers on Friday night <laughs> while I was at orchestra rehearsal. Thanks. But... We were like talking about data visualization a bit, and this was an example that came up at the at Bandcamp. So this is so you want to write a fugue. It's a Glenn Gould composition, and the um, lecturer there showed us just like a video of the the musicians performing it. But then she also showed us this bar graph animation. Uh, each part is assigned a different color, and each word is on the screen at the part where it is sung. 
And then uh, strings parts are just represented by bars depending on how long they are. And so it's intended to kind of show visually who is singing and who is playing when. And then so that you can kind of trace the lines of the fugue, because that's kind of the idea of a fugue, is that there's kind of a repeating melody that gets played in different iterations and with different like voices that are singing. So yeah, this is just like a nerdy data viz. Thing. So here there is a course, there's a correlation fact, there's direct correlation between the length of the line and the length of the note being mm -hmm. played. Yep. And I'm sure Carla knows all the more proper terms for that, which, <laughs> right. which, which shows, right, like being able to talk about this yeah. is a literacy. And it's color coded, but it's also in real time. So as it's playing, you can see what's happening. It's kind of like karaoke, but for fancier mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> music. <laughs> and here there's no stupid bouncy ball that says true. you have to sing this part. True. That's true. Flash that butter and go. Jittery side guys with a butter watering hole. Water patrol, water with a heart. How could be yard buckery suddenly? Not enough young in his lung for the water wing. Colorfully bold and then you had found one about complexity of vocabulary in hip-hop? Yeah. So in the Information Literacy and Social Justice volume, I noticed there's a chapter called Hip-Hop and Information Literacy, critically incorporating hip-hop in information literacy instruction. And immediately I thought of, well, gee, that's an interest of mine. And whenever I had to teach whatever closest information literacy was to, uh, you know, say, undergraduates, which is more kind of skill-based. Um, I went for things that I know or am interested mm. in, or maybe they know and they're interested in, which is a good way to make concepts such as infoliteracy, because you know, the 19-year-olds don't care about that, maybe a little bit more relevant. And um, this one I shared actually a couple of years ago at an Open Data Summit. Um, so I don't know if the data for this particular, I guess, infographic or data viz is um, open. Uh, but again, we'll link to both so you can compare. But group that does analysis, I think it's the pudding. <laughs> <laughs> Very professional. <laughs> it's amazing that like companies who specialize in data viz is a thing because it shows what a demand there is for communicating visually with contemporary information, mm -hmm. which is usually large data sets. So here they looked at the number of unique words used within artists. You know, they had to scope it. So 35,000 lyrics. Uh, so it's not necessarily over time. And essentially they compared. So who has the most variety of words and who has the least? And they put them kind of on a scale and really it almost boils down to a bell curve. And you learn that Aesop Rock has the most unique words used. So hip hop is lyrically dense in that there's a lot of play on words, there's symbols, metaphors, jokes running, so that's, you condense a lot of information to say a few lines, just like poetry, but here it's also the most words used, so often the, the marker is, you know, Shakespeare versus newspapers, right, so Shakespeare uses a larger breadth of unique words even for the same things. So let's just say Aesop Rock is the Shakespeare of hip hop. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Wu-Tang Clan does pretty well. Yeah, various members of the Wu-Tang Clan actually are very... Yeah, I noticed they have a filter that you can filter just by Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> just to see. Priorities, <laughs> yeah. guys. You're right. There, there is a toggle. Oh, and actually, yeah, they, they show Shakespeare would be oh. 5,000 uh, unique words, I think, huh. per 35,000. And ASAP Rock was... Uh, Beyond Rock that. Was, yeah, by, like by 7,300. 
Yeah, interesting. And Moby Dick is uh, sort of a, a marker as well. And at the bottom we have uh, DMX. DMX. <laughs> and actually, interestingly, like even Dr. Dre does not fare too well. He's he's there. Another cool rapper from the UK, MF Doom, does pretty well towards the top end of the scale. So, well, it's interesting to see Eminem kind of right in the middle because mm-hmm. I remember when like. I don't know, he was kind of breaking or whatever, and that was one of the big arguments for Eminem, was like, lyrical genius, like, flow and blah, and so he's kind of middle of the pack in this particular infographic. So what does it teach us? I don't know. I think it gives some (laughs) legitimacy to hip-hop, and interestingly, I think so much of what's contemporary music nowadays is like country and hip-hop, right, And, and pop. So... It went from being underdog to being the mainstream, but arguably there's still variety within even that genre. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, what's interesting to me is that, you know, someone took the time to analyze this. They probably use some sort of tool. And I use this as an example of like, how would we question what their process was? So we do need some degree of literacy to be able to decode, just like you, Carla, being able to analyze what's going on in the fugue obviously listening to it and interpreting and seeing, yeah, you know, they're pretty correct or maybe they're not quite on point. Being able to interpret data viz and infographics are a form of that does take time, right? So we continue to push that literacy and comfort and being able to decipher in like charts and bar graphs, right? Mm -hmm. Like those axes, the labels, what is the thing telling us? Because often... It's trying to sway us, and there's also a lot of bad communication, and unfortunately it becomes almost like manipulation, right, for political reasons mm-hmm. or, or commercial reasons. So I firmly believe that this is a skill that I guess is needed, but also it's on people's minds. That was Music Data Visualization Corner with Lydia and Carla. <laughs> And how it relates to literacy, I think we covered that. Yeah, sure. The social justice you, part. You figure it out. Come on, we don't have to spoon feed you. No, this is part <laughs> of this podcast. We're trying to produce listeners who think for themselves and maybe write us in and tell us. Yeah. And then we don't have to explain ourselves. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Perfect. Well, it's been a very interesting and rewarding discussion for yes. me. As always. Yeah, write us in. Oh, yeah, do because I was super sad because I just learned how to check our iTunes podcast ratings and I was all excited. And then I went, of course, to give ourselves five stars. So I was like, well, I'll just start this off with a bang. And then it was like, you don't have enough like rates and reviews to see the average uh-huh. of like the how many stars we got. So I'm like, just do that for me so I can go see it. <laughs> A practical call to yeah. action. And uh, feel free to tweet us at Libs Aloud. We are trying to post more. We do what we do. Okay, see you next episode. <laughs>